Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. The pre-mid year, session number 539. Hello, and welcome to The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Welcome to The Pre-Med Years. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to speak with our guest today, someone who is actually now part of the medical school HQ advising team. Dr. Christine Crispin is a former director of admissions at UC Irvine, a former admissions committee member at Keck Medicine at USC, and is now again part of our advising team at medical school HQ. And we're going to talk all about kind of what, what's inside the head of these admissions committee members and how potentially you can take that knowledge and increase your chances of getting into medical school. One of my goals here at Medical School HQ, MedMedia, Mapped, all of these things that we're doing is to increase the transparency of this medical school admissions process, the application process, the admissions committee process to increase that transparency so that you have a better understanding of what's going on, not so that you can like play some game and try to gamify the system, but just so you are more aware of what each thing that you do, how it potentially affects your journey to medicine. And ultimately, the question is, well, is is there one answer? And no, Right, and we're gonna we're gonna dive into a lot of that today. I had Dr. Christine Crispin on back in episode 171, where we talked about reapplying to medical school. That was my first introduction to Christine and all of the amazing knowledge that she brings you. Before we jump in, though, I want to talk about the MCAT minutes brought to you by Blueprint MCAT. We all know that one of the most important parts of this process, not the most important part, but one of the most important parts is your MCAT score. Like it or not, it's there for the time being. We'll see how long that lasts. And to do well on the MCAT, you need to have a plan. That's why I love Blueprint MCAT's free, it's free MCAT study planner tool. Go create a free account over at blueprintmcat.com today. Sign up for that free account and use their study planner tool. Let that let the tool know when you're planning on taking the MCAT, how much time you have, all of that good stuff, and go from there. I hope you go sign up today at blueprintmcat.com. Let's go and jump in and say hello to Dr. Christine Crispin right now. 
Dr. Christine Crispin, welcome back to the pre-med years. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks, Ryan. How are you? I am wonderful. I'm excited to have you back on the podcast. You were with us a long time ago, not to date or age either of us. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking it up. I should have looked it up uh, before, um, but you were on the pre-med years back in episode 171. And, and this one is this will 537? be 530 something. Yeah, somewhere around there. Um, so lots of time has passed. That original episode, everyone can go listen to premediers.com slash 171. We talked a lot about reapplying to medical school. And I remember when I came across a YouTube video of yours or a YouTube video that had you on it, where you were talking about kind of some of the biggest flaws in applications and stu why students need to reapply. And I still use some of that advice today. <laughs> and I'm excited to chat with you because, hey, how have have things changed since we last talked? And uh, the the kind of topic that we discussed last time was lack of clinical experience is a very easy way to potentially ruin your application to medical school. Do you think that's still the case? Yeah, yes. I'm going to qualify that a little bit. Yeah. Um, I also think a lack of community service. Mm. Um, I think community service, at least the world that I come from, you know, I come in from the California medical schools and um, I generally advise now that student uh, community service is almost as equally important as clinical service. Wow. Why do you think that is? Um, my perspective from the world I come in from, they look at now who we're serving in terms of the hospital, the community and things like that. And they are really focusing on they want students who demonstrate, not just say it, but demonstrate altruism, mm -hmm. service to a community. Um, USC's hospital is basically one of the largest safety net hospitals in the county. And if you, are, if you don't have a, a lean towards serving that, you're probably not the right fit. Yeah. Yeah, that makes makes sense, right? It, it, very similar to why clinical experience is so important, right? Show me that you yeah. understand clinical experience. Hey, show me that you understand what it's like to give to people uh, in general, right? And what does that yeah, exactly. look like? Um, when I last had you on, I forget if you were still in the role uh, or, or weren't. You were former director of admissions at UC Irvine. But most recently on the admissions committee, you kind of transferred schools over to Keck Medicine at USC uh, and mm -hmm. were part of the admissions committee there. So you you have very high level understanding the inner workings of multiple admissions committees to kind of give you uh, a sense of what's going on, right? So that's kind of your pedigree, your background. Yeah. Um, the, I think when I was on the first time, I had just left Irvine. Mm -hmm. And so I wasn't yet fully a member of the committee at Keck. Um, Keck was about five, five years, five years ago. That shocks me a yeah. little bit. Um, so I started at the Keck admissions committee about five years ago. Okay. And so in between Irvine and Keck, I probably would sub in when an interviewer didn't show up or 
certain things, but I wasn't a full member. And then about five years ago, I, I, uh, became faculty. I got on as a full member. Yeah. And you recently left that position at Keck. So you're no longer on the admissions committee at Keck, correct? I am no longer on the admissions committee at Keck. Uh, last cycle was my final cycle. Okay. Um, I am a, I've switched over, you know, to the other side, so to speak. And I do the pre-health advising now at Chapman, which honestly, I like to think I take what I know from the other two schools Mm -hmm. and I really try to, I talk a lot about when I'm in committee, this is not what we have a conversation about. This is what we have a conversation about. Yeah. And I really try to take the practical from what we talk about and try to help students along. Yeah. And and that's awesome experience that that you're sharing with your students. And you also get to share with, with our students at Medical School HQ uh, as you are uh, an advisor on our team as well. And we're so happy to have you. Um, so it's it's interesting, right? From from several years ago having you on the podcast to today. We, we've seen potentially some shifting tides. And oh, by the way, there was this little thing called COVID in between then and yeah. now. How do you think COVID, now that we're kind of on the tail end, knock on wood, like we haven't had a variant come through, a new variant and, and kind of dismantle us again. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think COVID will impact admissions for the long term? Um, I think I use this term very loosely post COVID, which is what they say we are. Um, I do think students are still struggling to get the, the clinical particularly that they need. Um, I know here and students that I've talked with across the country are still struggling to find significant shadowing opportunities. Um, I, I'm like, be creative. You know, I've had a lot of questions about does virtual shadowing count? It's probably not going to count as much now as it did during the the height mm-hmm. the height of COVID. Yeah, but it's unfortunate because I think now when things have generally reopened, that's still something that's pretty closed. And yeah. so I do think there are. I think it is still very difficult to get certain types of experiences. Now, fortunately, hospitals are allowing for volunteers. You can still do hospice if you can find a community clinic. There are some other things you probably can do. So then you have to weigh, is shadowing as important? It can't be if you can't find it. So you have to like figure out your way to to navigate to new experiences, to still get the quality you need for your application. Yeah. Do you think schools, without kind of giving any top secrets away from from Keck, but do you think schools are are aware enough of the struggles of the pre-med student, right? We we I kind of picture the the people in their ivory towers going, <laughs> we don't know what you're doing, but we expect you to do everything. And if you don't have everything, then too bad. Uh, do you think they're aware of that and are adjusting their waiting system if they're using kind of weighted rubrics? Like, What's going on in their heads of the admissions committees? You know, it's funny. Last year, I I personally, in review of applications last year, felt that was the worst COVID hit group mm. in the three years or two years or whatever of COVID applications. The first year, 2020, no must. They just lost a few months of things. Mm-hmm. Nothing. 2021, 
if they were smart and have listened to anything any of us have said over the years, they probably still had done what they needed to do to have a fairly well put together application. And even if there was a six month to a year gap, it wasn't a big deal. Understandable. Last year is really where I looked, I'm like, oh, this might be a COVID gap. Mm. Oh, this one might. And so I had to adjust my own expectations, believe it or not, because I was tough. I mean, I'm still fairly tough on things like community service and clinical work. And I'm, I'm like, if they don't have it, I'm just as quickly inclined to say no as any other admissions committee member. Um, but last year I had to step back when I saw so many applications coming through that seemed to have certain gaps. Yeah. So I'm, I think as with any admissions committee member, it's probably going to be person dependent. Yeah. I don't think they are. Re- I think they think COVID's over, so it should be resuming to normal. But I don't think they are aware that the struggles pre-meds are having. Yeah. And and they're not new struggles, right? I think COVID just exacerbated and, and potentially it's it's part of the reason why we see there, there's been several um, articles hitting social media about the income gap between students who get into medical school and those who don't. And those students who have resources, obviously, for test prep and tutoring and all of that other stuff, but also potentially with a parent, parents who are doctors friends. or friends who are doctors, right? Mm-hmm. You, you kind of live in that that kind of income range. You're going to live next door to a doctor potentially, right? So that that's kind of always been there. And so the question comes back to why do we expect some of these things from students when we know that there are gaps based on potential income levels? <sighs> That, I think, question is beyond my knowledge <laughs> and ability. Um, I think there are certain things that are good. So not only was I on the admissions committee, I worked in medical education. So I went further in. I did exams. I I Step one, I've worked with students who struggle academically, who have gotten in and not been prepared, mm-hmm. who have gotten in and shouldn't have been there because mom or dad forced them in. Yeah. So I've worked on the other side of admissions. Now I've worked on both sides, the before and the after. Yeah. And um, I do think there is some good reason and good valid reason for clinical exposure. I think we have to be more flexible in the type. Um, and I think it. I think there's just a complete and total lack of transparency. So I think students without the cultural capital, the social capital, and the knowledge to know what needs to be done um, they, they, whether they think one thing, they can say, okay, I can shadow or I can't, I can't there, or they just can't find anything. They don't even know where to look. Yeah. So, um, I think some schools are probably trying to resolve that, but the expectations have certainly not changed. Yeah. Um, whether it's, you know, through pipeline programs, which I worked in immediately prior to coming to leaving USC, that was my final job at USC. Um, and trying to really develop pipeline programs for students who are specifically of a lower income. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of peel back the layer of hidden information. Um, but no, I think, I, I think there is a total bias and lack of fairness to getting in because you don't, there, there, you don't know what you don't know yeah. in terms of admissions. You don't, you don't even, there's the, it's so deep. You don't even know. Yeah. It's interesting, right? 
I I often struggle with this um, kind of duality of of a position of well as a physician, right, I've gone through this process and, and it's a hard process and I can understand mm-hmm. why medical schools may want, uh, the, the kind of language that I use is, is clinical experiences for you to prove to yourself that you like taking care of people, that you like the clinical environment, that you're okay being around sick people. And then you use that experience to then be able to talk about it and write about it and, and hopefully convince the medical schools that you've, you've experienced this enough. And, and that it, it's, it's this weird thing because it's like, well, no other country really does that. Right. It's like <laughs> in Canada, it's almost impossible to find clinical experience and Canadian medical schools don't really expect it. And in most other countries, it's straight from high school into some mm-hmm. six year program where you're not really doing undergrad. And so it's really just academics that's, that's getting people to a point. And, and I'm like, I keep, I come back to like, why are we so different? What is the point of it? What's the goal? And is it really helping? I don't know. I, 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 this is the the world that I live in and it just, it keeps me up at night. You know, I don't actually, I, I hear what you're saying and I don't necessarily disagree with it. And then, but I also think again, on the other side, having been on the other side, there are so many I think medical schools work very hard to keep you in medical school. So if you haven't done the clinical experiences, you know, attrition levels, which is basically you have left the school for any reason, attrition levels are very low. And so when you have jumped through every hoop on the planet to get into the place, there's certainly enough services once you're there to keep you there. So if you are forced, you know, a lot of people have very good grades that probably shouldn't go to medical school and maybe they're forced or pressured to do it by their parent mm. or whatever. And so I guess you like to think that the clinical exposure could weed you out a little bit. I mean, I've read applications of students who are physicians, children who should not go to medical school where I'm yeah. like, no, nope. they check the boxes. They do the bare minimum. They're very academically qualified without a doubt, but that's about as far as they get. Yeah. So I, I don't, I mean, if you're asking me for an answer, I don't, I don't <laughs> there, there that is one. Yeah. But I hear what you're saying, and I also can see why it can be important as well. Yeah. Um, and then if you're just focusing solely on academics, that's another level of bias and disadvantage anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, students who are first-gen, low-income, ill-prepared, they have a different level of barriers. Not, you know, forget finding clinical service. they got to get through, if they haven't been weeded out by some advisor, get through gen chem, o chem, biochem, bio, and all those courses. And many times that doesn't happen either. Yeah. And so then they're weeded out in a different level. Yeah. It, it's interesting. We're about to submit uh, some research to um, an academic journal uh, about COVID's impact on pre-meds and kind of their understanding of things and without giving it all away before it's published. Like, Income is one of those factors, right? It's just, sure, it's shocker absolutely. of shockers, right? It's just like, oh. That's what I focused my dissertation on, yeah. those barriers and things like that. It's 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 there. And so we, yeah. have to, we have to allow for that as well. Yeah. You you talked about transparency. Obviously, that's a big mission that, that I'm on, that we're on at medical school headquarters, um, trying to increase transparency through, mm-hmm. through podcasts and having conversations with experts yeah. like yourself and uh, with our free platform mapped, uh, 99% of it's free to let students kind of understand a lot of this process. Yep. Do you think we'll ever get to a point 
where schools will be fully transparent. Like here's our cutoffs. Here's the minimums that we're looking for. We we see this in the PA school world. So to me, the argument that institutions have of like, it's a competition or for legal purposes, we can't, right? The PA world is very transparent in terms of here's the minimum number of hours. Here's a minimum GPA, minimum GRE. Do you think med schools will ever kind of catch on to that? Um, I think it'll probably take a generation where the students who are going in now, maybe, or who are going to come up, who have just gone through going in now, who have particularly those who are the brunt of a lack of transparency, who have struggled the most and who have had to apply three different, you know, the, the ones who shouldn't have had to go through all of that, um, Hopefully they'll be the ones taking over admissions committees and t- becoming the deans and directors. Um, with the current level of leadership, probably not anytime soon, but I think it could eventually get there if the message is getting gotten out enough mm-hmm. where newer students going through can take over that part. Yeah. Okay. So, so everyone listening, right, just start putting pressure on everyone you know and and try to make the change from the inside as you go through this process. You know, the people who are on the admissions committee, the deans and directors of admissions, not directors so much, but in some schools, but certainly many, most deans are physicians within the academic center. Mm -hmm. So they're the ones that are going to have to, so that the new guard of physicians coming up in their career, they're going to have to be the ones that step in and change the look of the admissions committee and change the look of what they're looking for and make the decision. And then whether it's pressure on the AAMC and pressure, you know, to the larger um, groups, whether it's um, the GEA, the the regional GEAs or whatever, but it's going to have to be a collective pressure from current physicians going into the roles. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I have a friend who's a Dean of admissions who is not a physician. I actually asked her this question recently. I'm like, why are so many, deans of admissions, physicians, and you're not. And do you think that plays uh, an impactful role in your perspective versus not? And it, it was interesting to hear her perspective. But um, yeah, I, I I don't know why they're physicians or why they need to be physicians. I would love for them to be academics who understand this world. Who understand education? Yeah. Maybe a smidgen? <laughs> Just a smidgen. Uh, it's great they understand medicine. They're physicians, but... Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting role. Uh, and then there are, I, I know, many physicians, dean of admissions who are fantastic at their job and have been in that role for many, many, many years, and, and they love it. And, and they're, they're probably more uh, academic uh, educators at this point than physicians uh, uh, keeping yeah. some clinical practice. But anyway. I've worked uh, for one MD and one non-MD. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And, and what was that perspective like? The MD, it is a closed... It is, it's an insular environment yeah. for sure. The non-MD is, uh, they're much more open, I think. Interesting. Yeah. So, and obviously that's it, an, an N of two. Um, so can't make yeah. broad strokes, but yeah, it, it's, it, it's interesting that there's this, this weird kind of history of physicians filling that role. Mm-hmm. So, uh, obviously again, lots of experience on the medical school admissions side now, a pre-health advisor, pre-med advisor, and then doing advising with Medical School HQ, Mm -hmm. Um, you have this unique perspective of all sides. 
-hmm. if if you could pinpoint outside of right the the normal what, what we've been talking about kind of socioeconomic disparities if you, if you could pinpoint a mentality struggle that those students who are successful versus those students who are not do, do you have any insight into that any thoughts about that um i don't know if that's a, i don't i don't know if that's if i'm answering the right question so let me just say i think those who are successful start early enough, ask questions early enough. Um, my experience very recently, particularly in the last year, I've, um, I've been doing a lot of pre-health advising, even for Chapman before I went there full time. And so my experience in the last year with these students has really been, you know, how many hours should I do? How many hours? And you've got to like do that mind shift of, I want to be a doctor. What do I need to do to get there? Yeah. As opposed to creating a list of items and checking off the items as they go along. Yeah. Um, secondly, I advise from a Keck perspective. I'm not going to lie. And so when I advise students, I think about what I have been trained to do through my time at Keck and Irvine, which is again, clinical community service, clinical community. And so I really focus on those types of things. And, and I think students also like to, they want to ask everybody on the planet or mm -hmm. uh, they'll ask me a question I'll give them an answer. And then they'll go ask their friend who got into medical school, mm -hmm. whoever the friend is, wherever they're going. <laughs> well, my friend said you have to have a three, a 4.0 only. Yep. Okay. Sure. I mean, that, if that's the way you want to do it, that's fine. <laughs> but that's not true. Yeah. That's why we post a range of 3.4 to a 4.0 or they post a range of 3.2 or whatever. Mm -hmm. You certainly have to, per, you know, perform well, but you do you buddy. I'm not going to talk you out of a 4.0. If you want to do it, do it. Um, so I think they have to trust the process a little bit with like, if they're working and coming through with the live sessions and stuff. I mean, I, I told you offline, I have, you know, you said you use stuff from our podcast. I use your videos and say, look at this and look at that. And so at some point they have to believe somebody. And I just hope they're finding the right person to believe mm -hmm. and they're getting good guidance. Cause I don't think everybody gets good guidance. Yeah. Which is unfortunate. Okay. I, I love the mentality you kind of started with of starting early, but also asking questions early. Mm -hmm. I talk to a lot of students who will just straight up admit, I didn't ask for help soon enough. Yeah. What do you I think agree. that trait is and, and why do you think that's so important? I think it's the trait that they think they should be able to do and know everything on their own. Mm -hmm. I think that's a, it's the psychosis of a pre-med or something. <laughs> you know? We all think you have to know it all now. You don't. Um, which is unfortunate because asking for help is just enhancing. You can ask questions or you can say, what is it that I need to know? I mean, just ask a broad blanket question. What should I know? What should I be doing at this time? And I can work backwards from when do you want to apply? When do you think you want to apply? Do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? And we can work through a series of questions and Q&A that I can ask questions based on what should I do? So I like pre-med and pre-health advising primarily so I can try to strike early. I mean, yeah. that has been, once I saw going back to podcast 100, whatever, once I saw what was happening, it's, 
it can be fixed before they apply and screw it up. Yeah. You just have to know you got to go. You got to find the person that you trust that's going to guide you the best and and stick with them. Yeah. One of the struggles that I have, again, I think it's it's fantastic. Students ask questions. But then there are the questions that I'm like, did you even try to Google that, right? What What is that fine line between great, you're asking questions, you're inquisitive, and you're being lazy, go, go do some research? Um, I don't know if I've gotten questions about that because I do, again, I think there is a, such a lack of transparency and I'm afraid their research is going to land them on a website that I personally hate. <laughs> And yep. so I'd prefer they Student ask Doctor Network. The, oh God! Um, My words, not yours. That's I. I don't care to say it. I just didn't want to put you in a bad position. So I hate that website. And so, um, I would prefer they ask whatever question they want to ask. Now, okay. what I don't like is when I give them an answer or I give them advice and then they question it or don't follow through with it, mm. and then they come back and ask me the same question. Same one. I'm yeah. sorry. Did I tell you, did I answer this one already? I'm sure I did. I recall this conversation. So that's my line of frustration. I do not care what questions you ask, because I think if you feel comfortable enough to come and ask me a question, I'm not going to berate the question you ask. You ask whatever you want to ask, as long as you haven't asked me that five times before. Yeah. One of the, uh, one of the, <laughs> the most common reasons behind a question is, will this help me stand out? Uh, on my medical school application. What do you think about that mentality? I hate that mentality, mm. actually. Why? Um, I agree. And why? <laughs> I think, look, as a pre-med, y'all do the same thing. Got to go to college. You got to get some good grades. You got to do a good MCAT score. You got to do some clinical. You got to do some community service. You all got to do the same thing. So what makes them stand out is their narrative behind it. What did they get from it? What do they learn from it? My favorite applications has always been someone who could tell me what their passion is through their, I don't, they don't even tell me, I just need to read it. Mm -hmm. And so that's what makes them stand out. So if I get a master's degree in public health, that's going to make me stand out. Nobody cares. I mean, I, we joked about that offline, but nobody cares. I mean, it's great. Do it. If you want to do it for your career, by all means, do it. Nothing like that is going to make, unless you're a Rhodes Scholar or one of those bigger things like that, I don't know what's going to make you stand out. You yeah. are the, the person behind the standing out. Your narrative is what makes you good. Yeah. And I have the hardest time conveying that message. Yeah. It's they really don't hard. Hear it. they, they, <laughs> they don't want to hear it because it's, it's not something tangible that they can do or act on mm -hmm. other than what we tell them, like, go be you and then, yeah. and then do that. Um, I was just at a conference um, and speaking with, uh, I, I don't think he'll mind me sharing, speaking with the Dean of Admissions at USF's med school, um, mm -hmm. Dr., um, Dr. Daniel. And he, we were having a, a <laughs> we chatted for several days straight just at the conference. Um, but one of the things that we talked about was the fact that it's very easy for him and for his admissions committee to, to read an application, to hear an interview, to get questions from pre-meds during, during conferences like we were at, with the meaning and intention behind what they're doing, basically saying, I want to be the student that you want, so tell me what I need to do. 
and and I, I kind of like, well, I think you'll be happy with us. What we try to do is like, you go be yourself and then let the, the medical schools figure out like, oh, I like you. I want to talk to you more and not everyone trying to, to fit a specific mold. Right. I like that. I, I think if you, you, you be authentically you, mm-hmm. um, I don't ever advise to one school. So I get everybody on the planet wants to ask me what about USC admissions or Irvine admissions. And that's great. I can tell you what I can tell you, but the reality is I don't advise that way. I don't, I'm not going to gear you toward a school. I'm going to gear you toward medical school. My, my job in all aspects is to give you the best advice to be a good applicant. My lens is certainly from the schools I've worked in, but it's not, I don't ever say, if you do this, you're a great, you're going to go to Keck or you're going to go to Irvine. I couldn't promise that. If you offered me a million dollars, I couldn't promise that. Yeah. Um, Why? Why why is it so hard, right? Students are wondering, like, why can't I get a checklist that tells me what Keck wants? And if I do it, I'm going to get an interview and then hopefully get an acceptance. Why is it so seemingly arbitrary or... Reddit and Student Doctor Network, they like to say it's just a game of luck, which I disagree with, but there is there is some arbitrariness to it. I I mean, honestly, I think part of it is it's I call it subjectively objective, where mm. I have a mental list of what I'm looking for. I go through an application, I'm looking for academics. You know, I, I will start there. Yeah. I may be forgiving on academics. I've certainly advocated for postbacker special master's program because I'm very familiar with them. Um but I look at academics and then I literally make a decision based on the experiences. I will focus in almost entirely on if I'm inviting for interview, I focus on experiences. If I'm voting for admission, I do interview and then experiences followed up by the letters of rec. And so that's, I make a significant portion of my decision out of experiences. And so there is a generalized non-specific checklist, but it's so subjectively subjective. Sadly, and secondly, there's too many. I mean, 8,000 applications, 600 interviews, 186 spots. That's the Keck numbers. Mm -hmm. People are going to be told no. I mean, you can literally do everything right. Yeah. And you're still going to be told no. It's, 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 there's just not enough spots. Yeah. I mean, that's the problem. Not enough spots, uh, which is a whole whole nother argument or discussion. Uh, And then I like to say, right, the, the kind of arbitrariness is, um, I get conversations with with a lot of non-traditional students. Um, one specifically that I can remember recently is someone who's in recovery uh, from from alcoholism, and, and and we went very deep into a conversation about how that may come across in an application, where some people may see it as a sign of of perseverance and strength and and be completely fine with it and support it, and then you may get someone who their spouse may be an alcoholic actively and they're dealing with with those ramifications or their spouse was sober for a long time and isn't anymore. And you're dealing with people, right, who have their own perspectives and their own lens and, and experiences. And they may on that one day hold that against you and you you won't know why that you got a rejection from that school. Uh, it, it's it's very true. It's That's where the subjective objectiveness comes in. It's I know what I'm looking for but if it isn't written right, if it isn't put together in a way that crosses my brain barrier, I will say no. Yeah. I have said no. I've yeah. done it. Um, 
we were uh, in in our team meeting earlier this morning. We were talking about AI and its impact on on things. Um, and NYU is very open uh, about the fact that they use AI in their screening process, where it potentially removes that subjective mm-hmm. objectiveness. Do you mm-hmm. think that's something that all schools should potentially move toward to to remove some of that personal bias, even though it's potentially still built into the algorithm? I think it could help on one hand because mm-hmm. again, 8,000, 10,000, 15,000 applications to a relatively small committee by comparison with mm-hmm. a short amount of time. Um, so if there is an algorithm set into the AI that could help refine, navigate and move things along, I don't know if that's a bad thing. I will say I worked at a place where there was some pre-screening happening. And so the pre-screened students that didn't quite pass the initial step got put into a bucket that got a different review. So even if the AI was able to screen out prime candidates first, they get maybe the quick first review and then screen out the less prime candidates Mm. or at least a separate eye, something to make it a little easier I don't know that that's a bad thing. Yeah. Uh, I, I just I just messaged uh, Dr. Rivera at NYU. Beck, when are you coming on the podcast? Talk about your AI stuff. Uh, I've, <laughs> I've had him on the podcast several times, and, and he did say he would come on to talk about what they're doing with AI in, in medical school admissions. So it would be uh, I would be curious to hear what he says because I think there are some objective criteria that you can say. Do they have – you know, do they have clinical hours? How many hours mm-hmm. of clinical or how many years or what, you know, whatever yeah. your, whatever your thing is. Yeah. Do you have research? Do you have this? Do you have that? Um, yeah. And it, it would be very easy to, to create, like, what am I looking for? And is it percentage based? Like X percentage of time I would love to see be clinical and shadowing and yeah. X percentage of time community service and and what does that look like and they they make no bones about it like NYU is very um very strong academically and that's what they're looking for strong academic students I'm like great that's that's your perspective and there are other schools that are like yeah academics are important we need our students to pass once they get into med school but that's that's not all we're looking for so it's one of the frustrating things for students I think is they hear from us it depends, it depends, it depends. Because <laughs> there are 200 plus medical schools, MDDO schools in this country, and and an we'll exponential number of, of admissions committee members who are uh, living their own life and have their own biases and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Explain to a student why potentially it's a good thing that we can't give them one solid thing that says, yes, this is the answer because we're not the person reading their application. First and foremost, it's the potential application per school is read by three to five different people at minimum. And so when you factor in each of those people, it just isn't the same school. We've probably all had the same type of training. These are things to look for, Um, but you're still gonna approach it with your own lens. Now, when you multiply that by 20, even just the 25, 35, whatever the number is that we say, this is the number you should apply to, Mm -hmm. that's how many more people. You're not gonna please, if we say do X, Y, and Z, that's the same thing as advising them to apply to one school Mm -hmm. because we're meeting that requirement. 
I actually wish the AAMC or whoever is the LCME um, would kind of get it together and have some preset criteria that would make it a little more transparent for students. Mm-hmm. I don't think telling a student you have to have a minimum of a 3.0 GPA to apply, just blanketly saying it. I say it. Mm-hmm. I actually tell them you need a 3.4 at minimum. <laughs> I mean, I don't even hide that yeah. because you do, you know, very few people below a 3.4 are going to get accepted without postback. Yeah. Without that um, upward trend we talk about. Without an upward trend, without a postback, a master, something. Yeah. But it's highly unlikely. Yeah. I think it's impossible, but highly unlikely. And so if we just, without a leadership body setting up some generalized, specific criteria, every school has the right to determine their thing. And so we certainly are not doing the students a service by saying, yes. Do 300 hours of clinical, 200 hours of community service, 100 hours of research, and then fill in the gaps with your extracurriculars from school. Because there's going to be a handful of schools, if not more, that says that's too much of that. That's not enough of that. You should have done this and you should have done that. We're, yeah. I mean, that's a disservice that we're doing to them by doing that. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. It's it's hard. Uh, and I think it's just, it's frustrating for students. And for hopefully sure. what we're doing day in and day out uh, with our podcasts and videos and stuff is is removing some of that uh, opaqueness to this process to help. I, I mean, I think if they spend, I mean, in the broad spectrum of things, if they really focus, if they know early enough that they want to become a physician, so freshman year, sophomore year, Well, at any point, if they're willing to give it at least two to four years of work from whatever point of time you make the the decision to become a physician, it's a very, you can do it. It's, it's very doable, even with generalities and it depends and maybe this, maybe not that. I mean, you can still appropriately advise someone, but they have to kind of put in the work to do that. But if they are willing to do the time and think about all the steps, if you, you know, you start at whatever point of the year and you're doing three to four years of reasonable clinical service, two hours a week, two hours every other week, community service, and then depending on your goals for research, at least a year and a half of research, and then filling in with leadership and extracurriculars and all that, you probably will have a very well-rounded, strong application. And that's all, given the confines of everything else, that's the best that we can do. But I think, I mean, I've been very successful at helping students get in. So I don't think my formula is too off base. Yeah. But, you know. Yeah. Um, you you are uh, on our team as an advisor working with students one-on-one. Who are your favorite mm-hmm. students to work with? Oh, gosh. I probably like, I like non-traditionals. Um. I like, I love my postbacks, students who feel that they um, are never going to get there and we can work with them to get there. They've, you know, they've had their, their ups and downs academically or whatever. So I love my postbacks and I really love first gen. I mean, those are, that's, I wrote my dissertation. Like I said, I, that's what I've dedicated a lot of my time to working with is students who, who don't know that if I can give them any information, that's, but yeah, I like probably the more non-traditional students is probably the ones that they gravitate to me. I gravitate to them. Maybe because I'm a first generation college student myself. Yeah, 
definitely. Uh, any last words of wisdom for the student listening to this? All freaked out. <laughs> we have them all freaked out about how crazy it is to get into med school now. No, I mean, I'm going to go back to what I just said. I think if you are willing to take the time, ask the question, just go talk to somebody. You have the live office hours, the podcast, the different things. You have all these opportunities. Ask the question, start early enough and take your time and do it right. Take out the checklist mentality and figure out what do I need to do to go to medical school? I need to do good clinical work. I need to figure out if this is the right job for me. I need to do good community service because I need to show and demonstrate that I care about somebody other than myself. And you do have to be academically qualified, but you don't have to be perfect. Perfection is not the goal. All right, there you have it again, Dr. Christine Crispin, a medical school HQ advisor. Now, if you would like to speak with Dr. Crispin or any of our medical school HQ advisors, we have a very small team of expert advisors, lots of former directors of admissions at various medical schools throughout the country. Um, go check it out at medicalschoolhq.net slash advising. This is MedEd Media.